0: It's time to open up a can of
1: advertisements.
2: I have not been to New Mexico, but I know two things about it for sure. Number one, it is beautiful. Number two, there is a lot of delicious food there. So if you're a true adventurer who loves traveling with your friends or family to totally unique places, you don't want to miss New Mexico for your next destination. There's so much to learn about New Mexico. To do that and plan your trip, visit newmexico.org. New Mexico, true. Pete and Jerry's has done one thing for generations. Produce eggs you can be proud of. All across the country, their small family farmers take pride in raising hens and providing certified organic free-range eggs that meet the highest standards. They do it because it's the right way to farm and because they want you to believe in what you buy. Learn more at peteandjerrys.com. This episode contains explicit language. I was in a
3: bar in Nashville, and I was looking at their cocktail menu, and one of the drinks had the spirit listed, and it was pineapple rum. And so I asked, can you tell me which brand this rum is? And I pointed to the item on the menu. And she kind of looked away from me and then looked back and was very quiet and was like, it's Plantation Pineapple Row. <laughs> so what was that? <laughs> it's Plantation, it's Plantation. Plantation, okay, okay. She's like, mm-hmm. and then she just walked away.
2: This is Osai Endelin. She's a food writer and friend of the show. We met up in a bar in Crown Heights, Brooklyn a while back, so she could tell me this story.
3: Usually if you inquire about a spirit, a bartender you know, in a in a place like that is gonna break it down for you a little bit. They're like excited to talk about it. Yeah, they're gonna give you maybe some notes on how it's made or if, you know, they if maybe they don't have that information, they'll might tell you at least what it tastes like. And she she wasn't busy. Like I was maybe one of two people at the bar. It was late in the evening. Um, my My read at the moment was that telling me, speaking to a black customer, Like, I have to tell you that this brand of this rum that you're asking about is called Plantation. It just created a sense of awkwardness for her as a young white woman.
2: That brand name, Plantation, also bothered Osai.
3: I don't know that I want to celebrate and partake in a spirit that seems to be, in some way that I'm not clear about, calling forth a history where people who looked like me and people who made this rum were enslaved and subjected to mental and emotional and, and physical and sexual abuse over generations and generations. That for me is the immediate connection. And I just couldn't fathom like, why anybody would want their rum to be associated with that
2: so, Osai is sitting at this bar in Nashville by herself, and the idea of this plantation rum is stirring up all these feelings for her. She's becoming more and more curious, not only about how it got its name, but about how it tastes. So, she decides to try it. She orders the pineapple rum drink, the bartender mixes it all up, and brings it over. I thought it was awesome. I was like, oh no. Oh <laughs> no. This is
3: really good. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah.
2: This is The Spork Full. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. In the food world, the word plantation pops up a lot. Recipes, restaurant names, cookbooks... It's the name of a line of teas that might be in your cupboard right now. Bigelow Plantation Mint. TV chef Andrew Zimmern has a plantation rice recipe. Rachel Ray has a plantation dinner recipe. To be totally honest, most of my life, I never gave it much thought. Until folks like Osai and others started talking to me about it. So this episode's about the word plantation in food and how white people in America use it. Now, back to me and Osai in Crown Heights over a couple of glasses of plantation rum. Mm. All right, so I have my plantation rum daiquiri here. What are you drinking, Osai? This is a painkiller,
3: and it has rum and coconut cream and uh, I think there's some aloe in here. It's basically like a pina colada.
2: With uh, some hand lotion mixed in. <laughs> you yeah. <Got it>. yeah. <laughs> know. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Oh, man, this daiquiri is firing on all cylinders, <laughs> let me tell you.
3: It's happening.
2: Okay, back to the story. After Osai discovers Plantation Rum in that bar in Nashville, she decides to write a piece about it. After all, she's a food writer. So first off, she wants to know how it got its name. She emails the company that makes it. It's a cognac house in France called Maison Ferrand. And the owner, Alexander Gabriel, who's white, agrees to talk with her.
3: He explained to me that, uh, for him, plantation, as a Frenchman is plantation, which la plantation translates to basically it's a farm. And so, you know, you take people at their, their word. I don't know that that absolves anything, but it was helpful to have a... I appreciated having the conversation.
2: So, in, in a larger sense, when you see the word plantation, not just on this rum, but on... A chicken dish in a restaurant right. or anywhere a plantation rice, whatever it is assuming that it was uh, the, the person who put it on that menu is not black Right. what do you think that the person who did that was trying to convey because it's, it's, as we know it's not a culinary term so you're not saying anything about the way that chicken or rice was cooked or the seasoning or anything so what do you think is the, what, what do you think they think they're doing when they put that word there <laughs> The, the,
3: the most generous idea that I have around that is something pastoral, this sense of sort of, you know, an open agrarian idea, uh, but that I'm really reaching. I mean, like, I'm really reaching. I, I don't know. I really don't understand what people are going for, particularly because... It's not so common that it's everywhere, but it's consistent enough that someone obviously is tapping into something that they feel is useful to their audience, and that's the thing that I think people don't really want to be responsible for when they get questioned about this, because they don't want to identify what that thing is.
2: Osai's piece about plantation rum was published by the Southern Foodways Alliance. And it got some attention. A white writer named Eric Ginsberg wrote a piece for Vice saying people should stop using the word plantation to sell food. He interviewed Osai along with a lot of other top black scholars and writers in the food world. Michael Twitty, Nicole Taylor, Adrian Miller, and more. (laughs) Osai was glad the conversation was happening. But one thing about that Vice piece frustrated her.
3: White people need to be talking to more white people about things like this because it's not black people building the resorts named after a plantation and putting a fence in front
2: of it. So, Osai, I'm going to sort of try to set out to find some white people to talk to, <laughs> to be as blunt as possible. That's what that's I'm going You're going on an expedition. I'm going on an expedition, yes. <laughs> um, what are you curious about?
3: Well, I would be curious. I am not as interested in the conversation of stop using the word as I am interested in the investigation of why the word keeps appearing that is a real it is a touchy subject but i I would love to hear that conversation from a place of real inquiry and not just like let me get through this because it's an awkward thing but i'll just go back to business as usual um i think it's going to be challenging for you to find somebody who wants to have a conversation with you that's like real We'll see. I would love to be wrong.
2: <laughs> that would be a vote of confidence. <laughs> well, I'm not making any promises, Sadi. <laughs> All right. Well, cheers.
3: Cheers. Just drinking with you. This is great. I totally lapped you on this cocktail. You did. Laps I'll catch up. You- <laughs> yeah.
2: From there, we here at Team Sporkful started tracking down examples of plantation branding in food. We found restaurants all over the country using the word in their name. From San Diego to upstate New York, from Wisconsin to the Jersey Shore to North Carolina. Places like Southern Plantation Restaurant and Plantation Supper Club. And there were examples on food blogs, menus, and in cookbooks. Dishes like Plantation Crunch and Old Virginia Plantation Spoonbread. As I said, there are big chefs and brands using it too. We reached out multiple times to Bigelow Tea, who make that plantation mint flavor, but they declined to comment. TV chefs Andrew Zimmern and Rachel Ray also turned us down. One food blogger told us she listens to the sporkful and would be honored to be on the show, but she didn't wanna talk about a topic that might, quote, flame the fires that still burn in this country. She added, I myself have friends who are still tender on the subject. I best tread lightly. Overall, 22 people and companies declined to talk with us. But that wasn't everyone. We got eight people who are using or have used the word plantation and food, all of them white, to talk with us. Restaurateurs, cookbook authors, bloggers. I wanted to ask them Osaya's question. What are you trying to communicate with the word plantation? The day of the first conversation, I went into the studio a little early before making any calls. My producers asked me to try to describe how I was feeling about our mission. You know, like in sci-fi movies or whether it's like even like Spaceballs or Star Wars, like when they're in the giant battleship and, and the alarm goes off and the, this automated system ex- always exists on the spaceship to have all these walls go up to block all the hallways, and it's like... Sh- <laughs> That's what talking about race used to feel like for me. Like, just like immediately, like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Oh, I'm going to screw this up. And I really, really think I'm probably using the wrong words for this. So I really think we should just change the subject because I'm pretty sure I'm going to offend someone. And then they're going to think that I'm racist. I mean, I grew up in a white town. My high school graduating class was 145 people. I don't think there was a single black person in our graduating class. There was a handful of other people of color. Um, I was one of the very few Jewish kids. I mean, it was overwhelmingly white Christian town. So I was very uncomfortable talking about race. And in the early episodes of The Sporkful, when I attempted to talk about it, I would be like a stuttering, blubbering mess. You know, I think that that sometimes on this show, when we spend more time digging into something in great detail, I, I like I like it when it changes the way that people look at that thing forever and changes the way i look at that thing forever i mean i think that that the hope is that this will reveal something about whiteness hello hi blair Yes. Hey, it's Dan Pashman from The Sporkful. How are you?
4: Hi, Dan. I'm good. How are you?
2: Good, good. Thanks so much for making time for us today.
4: Yeah, good to talk to you.
2: This is Blair Lonergan. She runs a food blog called The Seasoned Mom. She has a recipe there for Old Virginia Plantation spoon bread. Blair is from Virginia, but the name is more connected to her grandmother, who grew up in Chicago with Polish immigrant parents.
4: So my grandmother, at the holidays, she loved to go to Colonial Williamsburg, to have a meal at one of the historic taverns, and then just to kind of walk around and see the holiday decorations and do some shopping.
2: What do you think your grandmother especially loved about Colonial Williamsburg?
4: She had this kind of fascination with Southern culture and um, historical colonial Virginia, just maybe some nostalgia or um, American culture that she was fascinated by because it was so different from the way she was raised and where she grew up.
2: And tell me about the name of the dish. Because uh, you said you created this, so you gave it its its name mm-hmm. on uh, on your website, right. Old Virginia right. Plantation Spoonbread. Um, wh- right. Wh- wh- where did you come up with the name?
4: I want people to see a recipe on my site and instantly have a strong reaction. If I had just named this post Spoon Bread, to me, it doesn't have nearly the appeal as if I attach Old Virginia Plantation Spoon Bread to the post because that automatically conjures an image in the reader's mind um, as to what I would think might be uh, a comforting, cozy dish that goes back generations that might remind someone of the meals that they ate at their grandmother's table. So um, it was really just my attempt at making something as simple and basic as spoon bread sound more appealing to the potential reader.
2: I asked similar questions to everyone I spoke with. I'll tell you who they all are, but first, I just want you to get a feel for the conversations.
5: Plentiful food, lots of food is what I envision when I hear plantation.
2: And where do, where do you think that image, that idea of plentiful food at a plantation comes from?
0: I don't, I think it just
4: comes from our culture, from, you know, such a young age of, you know, pictures we, we see in storybooks. Just media over the years and reading books and imagining it in your head. The cozy scenes that you see in cookbooks.
5: Yeah, I think of Gone with the Wind, plantations and stuff like that. That's my impression. Scarlet and all that kind of stuff.
2: Those clips began and ended with Tom Gumhold. He owned the Plantation Supper Club in Wisconsin until it closed recently. In there, you also heard Mary Ann Dwyer, who runs the Beach House Kitchen blog. She has a recipe there for Plantation Crunch. And you heard Blair Lonigan again. Tom Gumhold mentioned Gone with the Wind and Scarlett O'Hara. He wasn't the only one to connect his image of Plantation's to that film.
5: They just saw this big pillared white mansion, horse and buggies and people all dressed up. You know, probably gone with the wind, you know, from that perspective.
2: This is Vinnie Carbone, chef and owner of Carbone's Ristorante in Hartford, Connecticut. His grandfather and uncle opened the place in 1938 and called it Southern Plantation Restaurant. They avoided an Italian name because they were worried about anti-Italian prejudice. They changed the name to Carbone's in 1961, when Italian restaurants were becoming more mainstream. And am I right? At the time that your grandfather and his brother named their restaurant Southern Plantation... Had they even ever been to the South? No, no. So where exactly did that image come from? So here's really the first question, Professor. Up until a year or two ago, if I heard the word plantation in food, someone offered me a dish of plantation chicken or a nice glass of plantation mint tea, that word plantation would immediately conjure for me an image of this old South home with the big white pillars, the columns in front and the big wraparound porch. Maybe there's a a picture of sweet tea on the veranda and uh you know, granddaddy in a rocking chair, and then there's kids frolicking in the front yard, and eventually there's a big picnic table with a red and white tablecloth, and all this, a huge, bountiful array of food arrives fried chicken and collard greens, and it's very beautiful, it's idyllic, it's leisurely, and it's delicious, and it's very comforting. It was it, that's a warm and fuzzy image for me. I have never seen that with my own eyes. I've never experienced that in my life. I'm a 42-year-old white guy from New Jersey. So my first question to you is, how did that image get in my head?
6: Hmm. Well, that's interesting because I was listening to your description of that, and I didn't hear you once say, and you were being served by an African-American. This
2: is Professor Karen Cox
6: that image um, has been around for a long time and it has so much to do with popular culture.
2: Coming up, we take a deeper look at what that plantation image is really communicating and we ask how so many of these folks I'm talking with and I got that blissful picture in our heads. Plus, the conversations continue and things get more tense.
0: You know, I really don't enjoy this
4: conversation There are two very different, very contrasting
5: ways of looking at a simple word. I don't want my kids to feel guilty because they're...
2: In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook... They don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to like this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went and, you know, they're teaching you how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, she's very food motivated. And my daughter Emily turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. (laughs) And so she is food motivated. And that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high quality pet food. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe. So they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Now, let me tell you something. When it's dinner time, Sasha is motivated. Okay. She is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner to get up off the couch, whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best Buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyard has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Papin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Papin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know the peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy and the folks at reese's do it better than anyone so shop reese's peanut butter cups now at a store near you found wherever candy is
5: sold i don't want any of that nonsense i think that's nonsense hope you're hungry because it's time for some ads
2: Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. If you're new to our show, I hope you'll take a minute and scroll through our feed check out a few of our other episodes. We use food to get into science, history, culture, and absurd debates about the best way to layer a PB&J. Point is, we cover a lot of ground. I'm sure we have other episodes for you. And if you're enjoying this episode in Apple Podcasts, please take a minute right now to subscribe. That helps out our show and it makes sure you don't miss future episodes. Go ahead and you can hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts. If you listen in Spotify, follow. Listen in Stitcher Favorite. Thanks. Okay, back to the show. And let's pick up with my conversation with Professor Karen Cox, who you started to hear before the break. She's a history professor at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. She's white, and she's the author of Dreaming of Dixie: How the South Was Created in American Popular Culture. Even before the Civil War, Professor Cox says white writers published plenty of books that made life in the South look pretty great, even for enslaved people. Then, in the late 1800s, this messaging started to spread as advertising and mass marketing emerged. That's when Aunt Jemima was created. But it was in the 1920s and 30s that the branding of the South and plantation life really took off.
6: There were 75 films in the 1930s that were set on the plantation, or in the plantation South. Even before Gone with the Wind was even an idea in Margaret Mitchell's head. You have an image of the South that is that is leisurely, that is wealthy and, and in which um, Blacks play the role of, of servant, although they call them servants. They're not saying they're slaves, but that's exactly what they were. If you watch Gone with the Wind, that's what you see. You know, these these are faithful people that don't leave their white families.
2: And Professor Cox says it wasn't just movies. Lots of food brands emerged around this time that portrayed Black Americans in the role of servants, from Longwood Plantation brand Syrup to Uncle Ben's. So what's happening at this time that's making Americans gravitate to this image of life on the plantation? Two things. First, the Industrial Revolution.
6: Industry was just grinding people down, and they longed for a place that was American where things were easier.
2: The other factor, the Great Migration. Black Americans are moving north in large numbers for the first time in search of work and better lives. And Professor Cox says that's making white folks in the north very anxious. So marketers in New York create products and movies and books that remind white people in the north of a time when life was easy and affluent, when they were in their rightful place above black people. The basic message? You may not have a black servant, but if you buy this pancake mix, it's the next best thing.
6: What Aunt Jemima and all these other caricatures of the South were about was about northern capitalism and, and wanting to just make a—they knew they could make a buck off of it.
2: Yes, the northern capitalists saw that they could make a buck by latching on to this whitewashed image and selling it. But what's—what, the you know, the other side of that coin is like, you know— Some marketing pitches work better than others. Some marketing pitches last longer than others. This one was especially effective and has bored itself deep into the public consciousness. And so for that to happen, the people receiving the marketing have to really like it. You know, like it has to really strike a chord. So it's not just a commentary on the people creating the advertising. It's also on the commentary on the people who are swayed by the advertising.
6: I agree with that. I think it's, it's, it is a combination of the two, you know, because, you know, you don't sell anything that people don't already have in their mind. It's also the reason that plantation tourism takes off in the 1930s, because people want to see it and feel it for
7: themselves. I see the plantation as a place of horror.
2: This is Professor Psyche Williams Forsen from the University of Maryland in College Park. She's Black. And her research in American Studies focuses on cultural history, food, and race.
7: All I can think about and all I can see is at some point, or either side of me, women, men, children, as young as maybe three or four, were out there possibly under the lash and under the threat of being beaten, killed, having your family members sold away.
2: Despite that association, Professor Williams Forsen can see why plantation branding has been so effective.
7: I mean, it's no secret that the South is a culinary bastion, right? This is where the taste and the flavors come alive and, and, you know, mix and mingle. So the notion of the plantation as a brand evokes, it must be sweet, it must be flavorful. This is for a segment of the population.
2: To be clear, the lines aren't completely black and white. Professor Williams Forson says it's not like all Black Americans know this history. And as another historian we spoke with pointed out, there are Black Americans who don't care about plantation imagery. Some even enjoy it. But the history of that imagery is one of white marketers trying to appeal to white consumers.
7: It evokes a past that has long gone for a lot of people that many wish was still there. Um, There are too many people coming into this country. We need to close the borders. We need to do this. We need to do that. That idyllic past gets put on these objects to soothe the nervousness and the discomfort and the frustration. Now, you may not, in your mind, you may not go back to slavery or anything like that. You may not drink plantation tea and think slavery or think, you know, but what it does is there's an unconscious comfort.
2: So professor as i said up until recently the word plantation would have evoked that happy idyllic image that i described for me
4: mm-hmm.
2: how is it possible that i was able to go 40-ish years living in america without having any without having that image ever challenged or questioned
7: Well, that's a very interesting question. Who's going to challenge it? What what spaces were you in that that question, that image would have been challenged? Did you grow up in African-American communities? Did you grow up in African-American communities of people who know these historical trends? Where would you have met that challenge? Would it have been in your primary or secondary school system where our textbooks tell us that, you know, slavery was uh, really about workers? Your question is exactly why we have people going to plantations saying, I want to hear about the plantation and not about slavery, as if the two can be separated. Who's challenging them? No one.
2: That plantation branding that both professors talked about, you still see plenty of it today. Bigelow is one of the biggest tea companies in the country. You can find their tea at Walmart, Target, Amazon. Like I said, they sell a plantation mint tea. And they also have a black tea that they advertise as coming from their Charleston Tea Plantation. The back of the box reads, over a hundred years ago, tea planters brought their finest ancestral tea bushes from China and India to Wadmala Island near the historic old city of Charleston, South Carolina. Now the direct descendants of these very plants have been lovingly restored to their former grandeur here at Charleston Tea Plantation, a lush subtropical tea farm. The label continues, It is in this context of great natural beauty and colonial pride that we bring you American classic tea. Please come see us for a unique, enjoyable tour of a working tea farm. And then Bigelow's website says the tour is, quote, a terrific way to experience historic Southern culture and a living piece of American history. Again, Bigelow declined multiple requests to comment for this episode. But as you heard, eight white folks using plantation branding and food did talk with us. Now, let's get back to those conversations let's move a little bit beyond specifically the word plantation and think of it more as an issue of plantation imagery, an image of the old South that has been ingrained in all of us, including in me. Mm -hmm. This is Britton Thrice. He publishes the Junior League of New Orleans Plantation Cookbook, which first came out in 1972. I, I wonder if you worry at all that Today, in 2019, that the book is in some way contributing to the furthering of this idyllic, very incomplete image.
5: Uh, Boy, who knows? Um, You know, I would would almost, you know, I would want to hear from a a contention of of, uh, Afro-Americans to see if if they had any, what their feelings were.
2: I, I don't think that you meant it this way, but I'm curious just to sort of like unpack a little bit in in saying that that was your goal in using the word plantation that readers would have such a sort of warm fuzzy feeling. What you may inadvertently be saying is this: this recipe is and this blogger for white people. No, and I I know you don't intend it that way, but I, what I, I guess what I'm saying, look, I make this mistake too. Sometimes in our podcast, I'll say something a certain way and realize that like, oh, the way that I said that was like, as in my head, I was only talking to white people. So I think that it's a, an understandable thing to do, but like inadvertently, can you understand how it could come across that way?
4: I can now that you've Yes, now that we've had this conversation. And that is obviously, or I shouldn't say obviously, that is definitely not what I intended.
2: That was Blair Lonergan again. She was the very first caller we heard. Now, this next group includes Marianne Dwyer and Vinnie Carbone, both of whom you heard earlier. You'll also hear Ruthie Frierson, who helped write that plantation cookbook. And first, we'll hear Annie Butler, owner of the Butler Greenwood Plantation B&B. It's on land that's been in Annie's family since it was a working plantation. But her family owned enslaved people.
0: I don't like the implication that plantation means something negative. Um, by the same token, I don't like the, the Scarlett O'Hara, you know, movie version of the, the romance of it either. I mean, it was a fact of life. It was a big farm.
4: I mean, I, I don't think anyone should forget, and I'm not trying to forget, and I don't think any of us should ever try to forget what happened, um, and what, what it was like for people who worked on plantations. But, um, you know, I think what I try to focus on, um, you know, when I cook is I want to focus on the, uh, you know, the hard work that the people did on those plantations and the food and the recipes that came out of it. And, you know, that's 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 the what I tend to, to focus on.
5: You know, we recognize and respect that, but it still was part of our history and can't be swept under the rug. Look at human history. People were in bondage longer and harder. And, and that's not saying what happened was right, but you know, let's just move on you know my god let's just move on
0: history is history and you don't erase it and you don't take down all of the monuments to to it uh, political correctness is is fine but it's just gone to the opposite extreme and somewhere in the middle there needs to be a balance uh, of how much of our history we're willing to to erase and rewrite, because I don't think that that is going to solve any problems.
2: What does it say about living in America that you and I can go through our lives without having to think about what the word plantation means to black Americans?
4: Right. I don't know. I don't know what that says about our culture, that we don't want to acknowledge or we don't want to focus on or we don't want to uh, admit this aspect of our country's
1: history? I don't think that's really fair because I've thought about it since I was a little girl. I mean, a tiny little girl. And when I was in fifth grade and I rode a streetcar and they didn't allow blacks to sit in the front, they had this... I'd sit in the back with the blacks. I mean, I, I thought it was disgraceful. I mean, I always had that in my heart and my feelings and in my, my faith.
2: How could I get managed to be 40-something years old in America and it never would have occurred to me until a black person pointed it out to me that the word plantation has a negative connotation. I have the luxury of going 40 something years without ever having to even think about it.
5: Right? Right? No, no, I no, no I I And that, that is but, that um, is a different experience. But do you feel do you feel guilty about it? Um sometimes because that that's not right i don't want to feel guilty i want to know how you feel i want to know what you've been through um so we don't repeat things of the future and it's 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 just healthy to have a perspective and maybe there's smarter people than me that can make real curriculums to teach people the entirety of the times but just to eradicate and erase things that's stupidity
2: so do you agree that you and i benefit from being white
5: Right now, no. Right now, I think uh, being black is the way to go. You know,
0: I really don't enjoy this conversation much. I I did not come into it thinking that this was going to be turning me into an apologist for slavery.
2: Hello, hello. Hey, Osai. How are you? Oh, snap. It's been so long. I know. I know. So you're in Paris now?
1: I'm in Paris. I'm at this hotel. They have a rum
2: bar here, of course. Are they serving plantation rum there?
1: I haven't been to the rum bar yet. I just checked in, but they claim this particular bar has vintages of rum that aren't available anyplace else in the world, so I'm gonna investigate this.
2: Okay, this is cool. this is a good beat that you stumbled into here, Osai. I
1: I try to find it I yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: I appreciate that. <laughs>
1: um,
2: so, so you, you you heard that some of the discussions we had with uh, with the various folks that I spoke with. Yeah, I
1: did.
2: You heard uh, you heard the same thing our listeners heard. And so what are your thoughts?
1: I I came away from listening to the clips like um, to varying degrees, different people were starting to interrogate themselves and the narratives that they haven't actually had to think very much about. And when that question is posited, when that seed is planted, it's very unsettling because it literally goes to the core of who you believe you are.
2: When we met up at the bar, you said, you know, you were really interested in trying to understand what are people who use the word plantation trying to communicate? What do they think they're communicating when they use the word? Yeah. And then you also said, but you're less interested in getting people to stop using the word. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that that to some, uh, so I, I can imagine that some white listeners, at least, I'm not going to speak for all listeners, um, would just be surprised. They would think that seems like the logical place to go.
1: I think it is a logical place to go, but I don't want to push you there out of shame. I want you to get there on your own two feet. And this is my probably my biggest issue with all that we're talking about. So many white people feel like they need a black person to give them like the gift of deliverance into the American psyche so they can understand better who they are and where they come from. I have to read shit. (laughs) (laughs) I have to research. I have to think. I have to unpack. I have to talk to relatives. I have to read between the lines. I have to watch movies that make me really uncomfortable because I want to know the context in which they were created and, and disseminated and popularized. I'm doing, that's what doing the work means. Like I did not come out of my mother's womb just with this, like a Pop-Tart with this information. I, I minored in Afro-American studies at UCLA. And when I say racism, when I say racist, I'm talking about systemic things. That's where people I think oftentimes really don't want to look because you, you have to be super accountable for the things that you're complicit in and the information that you have avoided receiving for a very long time.
2: And it's interesting because after going through this process of talking to all these people, it's like I I found myself with each conversation dreading the conversations more and more. It was demoralizing, it was frustrating. And so that certainly gave me a different perspective on being in the position to constantly have to explain.
5: Mm.
1: I appreciate you sharing that with me. I mean, and it's not surprising to me at all, but you get to sort of like turn the mic off, hang up the phone, and then go back to a life where none of that really is going to affect you or your family in a negative way. But for African-American people, for Black people, that never goes away, and it is life-threatening on every level.
2: So, Osai, you talked about sort of this idea that white people want a Black person to kind of hold their hand and you know, bring them to deliverance. <laughs> um, I'll be honest, like, I, we, we weren't sure whether I should call you back at the end of this. Because we didn't want you to be in that exact position, you know? Mm. So how how do we put together this episode? How do we end this episode so that you aren't in that position?
1: Oh, well, I think it's too late for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wrote I wrote the piece
3: right. <laughs> that got us got here.
2: One of the questions I was left with after all this was, if we were to really try to tell a more complete history of plantations, what would that look like? And how would most white Americans react? So next week, in part two of this series, I'm going to a plantation to find out. And not just any plantation. Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. The kitchen at Monticello was probably the most influential in American history. I'll tour the kitchen with a descendant of the enslaved chefs who cooked there, as well as culinary historian Michael Twitty. That's next week. If you connected with this episode and think other people might appreciate it, I hope you'll share it on social media and tag The Sporkful. And please subscribe to our show in Apple Podcasts. If you listen in Spotify, follow. If you listen in Stitcher, favorite. Thank you. My thanks to food writer Osai Endelin. Her essay that inspired this episode is called Distilled Identity. It was published by the Southern Foodways Alliance. She also has an essay in Charlotte Druckman's forthcoming anthology, Women on Food. And she's lately been a guest editor on Eater.com's Young Guns section, which features newer industry talent. We'll link to all of Osai's work at Sporkful.com. Thanks also to Shannon Mustafer and everyone at Gladys in Brooklyn where Osai and I had our cocktails. That reminded me just how good a classic daiquiri can be. Rum, sugar, lime juice, that is all you need. And the one at Gladys was on point. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Ann Sani And associate producer good, eh? Our editor is Peter Clowney. Additional editing and production on this episode by Osai Endelin, Claire Rawlinson, Oluwakemi Aladasui, Nick Jones, Harry Huggins, and Brian Moore. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell, music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Ari Strauss from Washington, D.C., reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better.